Hello and welcome to the first podcast of 2021 from City Centric. This interview is with Kate Langford, who's the Impact on Urban Health Program Director for the Health Effects on Air Pollution. It's a 10-year program to explore how poor air quality affects people's health. The program focuses on mitigating the disproportionate effect that exposure to poor air quality has on the health and well-being of those most susceptible to it. This includes children under 15, including during pregnancy, older people and people with heart and lung conditions. The Impact on Urban Health is a specialist division part of Guy's and St Thomas's charity. For over 500 years, Guy's and St Thomas's charity has been a constant in London's ever-changing landscape at the bleeding edge of health. Their endowment has allowed them to take a long-term view to help tackle the big health challenges today and tomorrow. They invest and use assets from property to a large arts collection to transform lives in parts of the city and cities around the world. Before joining the charity, Kate worked at the Innovation Unit, a public sector consultancy, where she led their work in health and social care, applying design-led methodologies to solve complex social issues. She started her career in academic health services research, specialising on health inequalities. Kate has a master's degree in public health from Imperial College London and a bachelor's in human sciences from University College London. Needless to say, you can understand why we wanted to get Kate on the podcast for a while and enjoyed working with her and her team in 2019 and 2020. So that's enough from me. Uh, Now is over the conversation between Araceli and Kate. Well, let's talk about the rebrand. Um, what? Um, why did you guys choose to do it? And what does that mean in terms of the charity's goals for public health? Yeah, so, um, uh, so we rebranded just before Christmas. We've got a new brand for the new year, which is Impact on Urban Health. Um, so this is really splitting off the work that Guys and St. Thomas's Charity have been doing for four or five years now, which is focused on on what it says on the tin, urban health, um, under a new brand, um, we we were finding that people were getting quite confused about, well, are you the hospital? Um, are you just a hospital's charity? Do you only fund work with the hospital? So um, we wanted to really kind of showcase all the work that we're doing around urban health and public health under this new brand. So um, impact on urban health will be our work, which looks at um, all those complex, knotty public health issues which you see in cities. So chartered obesity, um, the health effects of air pollution, uh, multiple long-term conditions, and um, our new programme on adolescent mental health as well. Mm. And then not to put you on the spot, we can always edit if it puts you too much on the spot, but how are you guys weaving in the disparities that are going to be coming in from COVID as well as COVID's um, secondary health effects, such as what you just said, the effect on mental health on teenagers, because they have been... Probably they're have they're having one of the roughest times, right? Because um, part of teenage mm-hmm. development is that they're coming into their social and physical and almost self development yeah. and to be doing this under under lockdown and under so much uncertainty are you guys going to cover it and if so and if not well if so tell me how and then if <laughs> not what what would be your like your wish list around post covid yeah so it's um it's a really good question so on all of our programs we've been trying to think about 
um, what can we do now? So what are the kind of short term things we can do to try and alleviate some of the pressures that people in Lambeth and Southwark are experiencing? So on our childhood obesity programme, we've been funding um, healthy school breakfasts and healthy school lunches as a kind of temporary solution to issues around food poverty um but we're also looking at kind of longer term trends and what we need to start funding now to 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 kind of um, meet some of the challenges that we think we're going to see coming out of covid on your specific question about uh, adolescent mental health um our work around adolescent mental health which is really early days so we haven't officially launched that program yet it's going to be launched later on this year but actually it's going to be focused more on primary school children as again a kind of preventative um preventative programs so we're going to be looking at early years in primary school and basically how do you prevent um mental health issues in by the time uh, children get to be teenagers so right. Um, which actually is a kind of theme throughout all of our work, which is um, if you look at look at the title, how do you go one step back and really look at the environments that create those issues, not just treating the issue itself? Um, so healthy food environments, healthy street environments, not just kind of looking at the problem once it's arisen. So that actually tees me up to one of the main things that I wanted to chat with you about, which is preventative health is multifactorial. We like to do it single factors, as in we being public health practitioners. So by the, an example of that would be the current posters being put up by the NHS that show people holding a salad bowl and that that will help with obesity. Or we have um, cycle lanes that we think that's going to tackle um, various uh, health and possibly even environmental problems such as air pollution. And whilst, yes, there is a line of truth in terms of how that can lead to health, it the, the singular factor of it can perhaps put a, a narrative into the ether that things can be solved with just one solution and how that yeah. can also potentially create inequality. So, um, so you want to talk about that in terms of how you, both how you're looking at it, but also guys in St. Thomas in terms of how those single factors can lead to further health inequities. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Like all of the, you know, we specifically picked all of the issues that we're looking at because they don't have one solution and they can't have one solution. Um, there isn't one single silver bullet that will solve any of these issues. And that what's, that's what makes them so intractable and difficult to solve. Um, I guess my my take on it is um, there's also another end of the spectrum. So for, I completely agree with you about the kind of the the focus on a single solution, both most of the time it's just the wrong answer. It's not, that isn't going to solve the whole problem, that single solution. Um, but also at the other end of the spectrum, I've seen a lot of public health practitioners get um, get almost too lost in in something being a complex systemic issue and then not being able to move forward with actually tackling the issue or practical action. So I, in a way, I'd say some of the like work around um, health inequalities like the, that's been happening in kind of academia for the last 20, 30 years, for, in some ways can fall into that category of mm. um, 
recognizing it's a systemic issue, but then not having practical solutions or not being able to move on lots of solutions at once. So I think what we're trying to do, and I'm trying is the trying is the right word because it's really, really hard, is um find a kind of middle ground where you do view it as a complex system. You view all of these issues. So air pollution, it's not enough to put in cycle lanes. You need to look at, be looking at um, all the different sources of air pollution, but also all the different knock-on effects of these different interventions. So you mm-hmm. need to be thinking about construction and wood burning and uh, freight. It's not just about getting people cycling, even though that's an important part of the picture, because the causes of air pollution, uh, there are so many of them in cities. Um, but equally, that can feel really overwhelming for people. So can we bite off like four or five manageable chunks um, that don't do what you described at the start, which is um, kind of frame the issue in a way that's unhelpful, but can we bite off four or five chunks, which means that we can get going? Because I think it's, it's for me, like, it's really important that we see like practical improvements on some of the issues that we're mm-hmm. working on. It's not enough to kind of map a system. We've got to, we've got to see progress. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And maybe we should keep going into that discussion because, you know, the a big point of doing these podcasts is is making people aware, um, and by people I mean citizens, right, of why these decisions are being made and what are, you know, what are the weaknesses as well as on the practitioner side. So in terms of academia, and I would say even of research, you're you're right in pointing out that we also um, get paralyzed in the mapping. We get paralyzed by we don't have enough information and we don't have enough data. And yet people yeah. on the ground are experiencing already the fallouts, right? So if you, if you take it on air pollution, even, you know, an air pollution in correlation or in link or in relationship to anything, right? So whether it's air pollution and it's linked to obesity, you have epidemiologists saying we've got about 20 years worth of information linking the two, um, or linking, uh, air pollution to respiratory diseases. That's 30, 40, 50 years worth of archival information from an epidemiological side. And then that gets transferred over to public health and they're going, okay, but where is the evidence so I can tell the right people <laughs> to yeah. make the right decision so we can change it in policy, which means changing budgets. But then simultaneously, you have the people on the ground which is really technically all of us, all of us are also simultaneously practitioners and citizens inhaling all these toxins and getting really sick. So do you have anything to say in terms of how do we clean up that supply chain? Where do we say we have enough information? Now we need to move. Um, And then I'll come back to the whole LTN because I do want to talk to you a little bit deeper (laughs) about that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, my... um, my initial kind of training was in public health. So I really, I really hear you on some of where some of this gets stuck. And for me, there's, you know, around something like air pollution, there's a lot of evidence about the problem now. Mm-hmm. Um, so about it's the health effects. I think where it gets stuck is actually that, that kind of catch 22 of um, around what solutions and how do you evaluate them? And so you know, very little is actually evaluated to look at its impact on air pollution. Big things are, so things like the implementation of the ULES, um, the ultra-low emission zone, 
um, you know, people have been tracking the impact of that. But a lot of the interventions that people try are, are just not evaluated. And we did, um, we're really lucky to have Frank Kelly from Imperial do some scoping um, research right at the start of our program and feed in some of his thoughts. And he was just saying, well, the part of the problem is that there's little evaluated. And because of that, other people aren't implementing some of those interventions because there's no evidence for them. So you end up in this catch-22 of, well, there's no evidence for these interventions to work, so they don't get implemented. But if they're not implemented, then you can't grow your evidence base. So <laughs> yeah. it's just it just, it just ends up in a place when people aren't trying things or people are trying things and they're not, um, they're not evaluating them. And then we just genuinely don't know what works, which I find really frustrating because... Um, there's no point spending lots of money implementing things that aren't, just aren't going to have an impact. So right. um, I guess for me, there's something really important about like, how do you embed like evaluation in all of the work that you do? And it doesn't have, that doesn't mean that it has to be, um, you know, uh, the kind of the academically rigorous. We don't, it doesn't all have to be randomized control trials. It can just be like, are we capturing data on what we're trying to have an impact on so um if we're doing something around cargo bikes say and trying to get more businesses to use cargo bikes are we capturing data on our businesses actually swapping are we capturing how many um how many kind of van trips that's replacing some of those things just don't seem to happen um, right. at the moment so i i think there's a really big role for just like really pragmatic capturing of the impact of solutions because I think we've we know enough about the problem I think that's my general position is we know enough yeah. about the problem we need to know about what works in practice and then I guess coming to your point about people's lived experience I think there's so much you can learn from just listening to people and understanding how some whether it's interventions or policies are playing out for them or even just you know just trying to make sure that you don't don't come up with ideas in a bubble so one of the things that I've been really struck by and I think I mentioned this to you before Araceli is um you know lots of emphasis on walking and cycling um around where I live in Tottenham loads and loads of young people are now using electric scooters and I've seen just like because you know daily walks my daily exercise I've seen that massively increase over the you know during the pandemic we don't really know why that you know, why is that? Why is that more attractive to some of those kids than a bicycle? Um, like there's so much we can learn from just like observing and talking to people and listening to people um, that I, I feel like that's a really important part of the puzzle as well. Yeah, massively. I, I am going to put a pin on that because I do want to talk to you about about communities. And I'm also going to put a pin on all of these issues that you're that you're pushing forward, because I want to know then how your new rebranding is going to, is going to <laughs> yeah. tackle that. But going into because I, I do. I do want people to understand um, the issue with or let's let's say let's call the LTN solution, right? So the yeah. LTNs being the low um, traffic neighborhoods. And it's becoming a, it's starting to get pushed, unfortunately, by the media as a cultural war. And that already starts to make me nervous because we can't have a binary, this is our side versus that's your side conversation about something that really, truly shouldn't be political because air pollution 
doesn't care about your politics. It's going to affect you, whether regardless of what you think about air pollution. And um, and then the second thing is that we so we we put out the question to people. You know, what do you think about LTNs? How is it affecting you? And yes, there have been some positives, and of course, there are some positives in terms of um, cyclists cyclists are feeling safer um, transporting mm-hmm. themselves from point A to B, which is absolutely paramount. Um, but equally, there's also been people saying you know, inequality has risen, i.e. I use a car because of X, which is children. A lot of it actually, ironically, is children that they're needing to transport um, children from pointing to be in firm activities, people of color thinking that they are safer and feeling safer within their own transport than using public transport, which then made us think about Yes, that we have to think about traffic, not just as the incident as soon as somebody goes in the car, but all the multi-factors that push people into a car so we can understand how to do this more equitably and not just throwing it because that is where we're wasting money, right? Because as soon as as soon as it becomes political and people start voting it out, we're not going to have the nuanced conversation that we need around traffic and we need to. Um, So, yeah. So what are your, what are your thoughts on that um, of how do we do equitable mobility and how do we create um, more, think about things in a more equitable way? Yeah. So I would, I mean, firstly, I mean, firstly, I'd love to hear more about all of the server responses you got, because it sounds really, really interesting and important. Um, I, I I completely agree with you about nuance and the importance uh, the importance of nuance. Like um, low traffic neighbourhoods aren't all the same, and actually these neighbourhoods look really really different. Um, mm. So am I am I against the idea that um, you know some road closures and making streets healthier definitely not we've actually put some funding into a healthy streets program in Southwark with Southwark Council um, in three of the most deprived neighborhoods in the boroughs and it's specifically targeted areas with high levels of um, social housing schools with poor air quality to look what interventions can be put around those areas so um, but they're not all of these low traffic neighborhoods aren't the same so if you do something in Waltham Forest, it's very different from doing something in uh, a more central area of London where you've got higher levels of car ownership. There's then they're just not they're not really comparable areas in the way that I think people think they are. The interventions aren't comparable. So I I find the kind of, um, I guess, a stoking of a culture war really unhelpful when we should be having conversations about um, what works where and for whom, Um, you know, because there are the, lots of these neighborhoods are just really, really different. Um, so I'm going to, yeah. sorry, I'm going to just puncture that. Yeah. What works where for whom? That is such yeah. an important phrase. And part of equitability is actually fairness, right? Which means yeah. not one solution for all. Yeah. Um, so yeah. what, what would you say in terms of techniques, maybe even that you guys would start employing to be able to, to do that? Cause that, that, and when you're talking about, it being hard, that's what makes us work hard, right? That you want, everyone asks, at least from our side, asks us for, okay, what's the plan? And I'm like, there is no plan because that's our, always our question. Which area for which people? What are yeah. their problems? How are they living? What's their habitat? And that's hard because you, that means you yeah. have to do one place at a time. 
Yeah. Well, I guess so the three things that we're doing on with this work in Southwark, which we've been really trying to ensure that it, it is as equitable as possible. So the first was being really specific about what our selection criteria were for neighbors, neighborhoods that we focus on. So, um, you know, lots of the people who are concerned about low traffic neighborhoods rightly have said are communities who just shout the loudest getting them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had quite strict selection criteria saying it had to be a high area of high deprivation, had to be an area um, with schools with poor air quality. It had to have higher levels of chartered obesity. Um, it had to um, have high levels of social housing. And it had to be an area where they where this type of thing hadn't been tried before. So they'd missed out on funding for um, street improvement work. So, um, and we worked really closely with Southwark's public health team, actually, as well as their highways team. Um, to to kind of do that analysis and identify the areas that we should be focusing on. So I think that's really important. Um, the second thing that we're doing, and, I, you know, all of this is we'll see, I, I hope it's going to work, It you know, and it's all, it, you know, we, we, will, we will see how effective it is. The second thing we're doing is... Um, as well as the mainstream um, local authority consultation process, we are working with an organization called Clearview who um, essentially um, get, they hire kind of community researchers and community facilitators to to, um, undertake, you know, uh, research and community engagement. So they hire people from those communities to do the research rather than sending external researchers in. And so we're working with them to try and um, get some more um, generalized, well, not generalized, well, some, some more kind of like um, a, a better kind of sample of people responding around, how is this impacting on you? What are the positives? What are the negatives? So we're not just hearing from the people who are really engaged in this subject, but we're hearing from um, from kind of grassroots community networks. So that's, and, and we've actually put aside some budget so that, if people tell us certain things aren't working or there are some barriers to walking and cycling or giving up their cars that we can overcome, we put aside budget so we can um, imp- basically change the intervention and actually adapt it based on what people are saying. Um, and the third thing that we've done is we've um, we've got an evaluation which is going to look at traffic levels both in those neighbourhoods and um, adjacent main roads. Um, and we've got, um, which is the public health geek term of counterfactual neighbourhoods, but basically control neighbourhoods. So neighbourhoods where there isn't an intervention. So we'll be able to compare and contrast and we'll be able to know was the, you know, was a decrease in traffic down to the intervention or was that just because we had another lockdown and everyone was told to stay at home again, mm. for example. So um, because I think that, again, that we need to be doing that type of evaluation, you need to have for this type of intervention, you need to be able to compare it to um, another area where there isn't intervention because there's such natural fluctuation at the moment, especially at the moment in, in the middle of a pandemic around traffic levels and when people are getting in their cars and when they're not. So those are three things we're doing to try and make sure that we really understand, is it working? If so, for whom? And um, making sure that we capture it you know 
if it is working, but also have in our back pocket ways to kind of adapt it if it's not. Right. No, those are, I think that that's, that that's really smart. And I think maybe let's tease out those, those, those three, because what, from what you said, if I surmise it is your first point again, is going into, it's that observation, right. And being able to see how things are and not, I'm not going to try to pretend that science is unbiased because it's not, but we try so much to stay with observation and go, okay, what is actually happening here um, versus what we think is happening there. So you, you know, identifying um, the communities that have been isolated is a really good place to start to go. Let's go and observe where nobody else observes. That's always a good place to start. But in, we haven't put it out. It is on our list for things to do this year. But what we uncovered with our work with EDF is that, uh, yeah, it was an accidental discovery by Josh, who is our um, urban colleague. And he said, you know what, the neighborhoods that have the least amount of car use, personal car use, are the places Mm. that are more saturated with traffic. Yeah, uh, and that is a double whammy of of disparity, right? So you have people that are already facing um, the the crippling effects of poverty, economic poverty, I should say, and also don't have necessary this is necessarily equitable mobility, yeah. and they're also facing air pollution all at the same time, and no one is talking to them to go, how do we make your neighborhood? less car heavy. And of course, for them, they don't get involved in the conversations about car heavy neighborhoods because they don't have the car. They do. The (laughs) car just comes onto them. And, um, and I was talking to this, um, to this public health practitioner from um, Tower Hamlets, and she was telling me how some of her constituents um, are being told, you know, to stop smoking. And they're like, we're not smoking. and, And it's because they are living in a high traffic zone even though they are not car owners and a lot of the people in her and their in those neighborhoods are not. So um, that's a really good, I think that part of going where nobody else is observing, going to the part of the yeah. problem nobody says is really important. Oh, that point around, and we've seen that in some of our research as well, that the communities who are most impacted also have the, by air pollution, also have the lowest levels of car ownership. Mm. Um, but actually one of the things that it, slightly frustrates me about the the kind of all the arguments about low traffic neighborhoods is it also pits community against community yes well when you look at the sources of um pollution and traffic in london especially when we're talking about central you know my the two boroughs that i focus on are, are relatively central london boroughs they're not outer london boroughs but when you look at the sources of um a lot of the traffic a lot of it isn't residents driving around. Some of it is a lot, you know, some of it is people drive kid, dropping their kids off at school and things like that. Also it is business related traffic. Mm-hmm. And so I also want, sometimes I, I get quite frustrated that maybe this is a, this is a massive distraction because actually what we should be talking about is, you know, some of, you know, delivery vans and the mm-hmm. massive increase in delivery vans or the fact that lots of businesses are still using cars and, you know, diesel cars and old cars to get around you know all like it it isn't just about residents changing the way that they get around it has to be around engaging businesses to say that people live here and your actions are impacting on people's health yeah. um 
so again, I think I think that's you know coming back to your original point around is it is it just about cycle lanes? It's not just about cycle lanes because it's not even just about how residents get around and whether you know the transport they use. It's also really about how do we get our goods around our city? Um, and that's for me, that's something that is both um is actually really exciting as well, because um I would love it if we had more of a joined up um kind of voice from residents that was around actually when we look at the traffic that's going through our place it's a lot of it is to do with businesses and goods coming in and there's solutions to that there's lots of practical things that can be done to um reduce that if you have if you have public pressure yeah 100% i mean there is a lot to do with the commercial habits as well of people um, that we don't get to have in that conversation, which again is why you can't, you don't, it's not a good technique to do a multi, sorry, to have a single factor solution to a multifactorial problem, because just by its definition, you're going to miss a lot and you're going to create an equitability. And then the other point that I wanted to tease out from, from, from your technique is the speaking to communities. Um, I was listening to a podcast and I'm going to get the names wrong because I am, I think I have semantic memory problems when it comes to, to names, but it's a Nick Estes podcast and he's a, he's a professor of not of um, indigenous uh, history of, from the Navajo nation. And he was talking to another professor called Vishad and Rod, I believe. Um, and what really struck me about what they said is how how we need to change our language of what intellect and data means, right? So that when a person from the community is telling you, after I was exposed to this smell or to which is correlated to X toxins, I started getting headaches. That's data. Yeah. And that's also intellect because we waste too much time in then bringing in the quote-unquote expert to go hmm now we're going to have data because the expert is here and it's how do we change that narrative to say okay the expert might be what they will be able to do is translate it to biological terms or translate it into policy terms however all it is is that that's a different way to intellectualize it rather than from that's the starting point of data intellectualism. So do you, do you have anything to say about, um, yeah, about really platforming communities? Yeah, it's so interesting. So, um, we've been working with, um, uh, another group of community researchers um, who at the moment are being hosted by the Social Innovation Partnership, but they're going to be spinning out um, as a kind of independent social enterprise later on this year, hopefully. And um, one of the, so, and we we asked them to help us to think about this issue around um, inequity and air pollution and how it plays out in Lambeth and Southwark. Um, and one of the first things they said they wanted to do was to do a lit review um, to look at some of the academic literature um, to understand that what what people have said before. And mm-hmm. um, they came back with um, their kind of summary of the academic literature. And it was called um, What They Say About Us Without Us. Oh, wow. And they were like, <laughs> and they were like, there's a lot of academic literature around inequalities and inequity and air pollution. 
And they were like, but none of these people live in, you know, I, it, I, I think they just felt like, especially because, you know, the group of um, community researchers working with are mostly black. They are speaking from the perspective of black residents of Lambeth and Southwark. And they didn't see people like them conducting this research. And it mm-hmm. because of that, it just, I don't think it really captured their experience and and not just their experience, but the like some of their really important like insights on what was going on around inequalities and in air pollution and what can be done differently. So um, we're hopefully going to publish that later on this year that their lit review and they've done some kind of follow-up research. But um, it just reminded me that who who does the research and who asks these questions is so important. Like we can't underestimate how important that is. Um, and I mean, because of that, we're we're putting, well, first of all, we're trying really, really hard to um, look at any organizations that are doing research for us now and actually the makeup of that organization themselves because who asks the questions matter and who interprets the data matters. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and also just putting money behind amplifying some of those voices as well. Um, so I would feel really uncomfortable as a white woman if... I was funding that research and then I was passing it off as like all of my own brilliant insights. It's, it's my role as a funder to amplify the voices of the people who are most affected um, and make sure they have a platform. That platform shouldn't, isn't mine. Like it should be for them. Um, so that I'm going to, I'm going to tease out there the, and and I think maybe we'll, we'll end with your other one on iteration. Cause I want to extract that as another tool that you've come up with. Cause I think that's quite brilliant. And then um, before we do that, I'm going to tease you out on the, on the, who interprets the data. That's such a crucial statement, but I think we're, oh, sorry. So on the, on the, who interprets data. So we're going to do some workshops with our data lead, um, Daniel, um, because we get so frustrated when we hear people say the data says, and we're like, data is language. That's let's like, let's, let's understand that data is language, which means that it's open for interpretation. Um, and so this, this question, I'm really looking forward to that report, um, of, of who interprets the data. Um, and again, I hear it all the time, like with the scientists that are um, other scientists that came in to work with South with the South Hall community that they kept saying, well, now we'll have data. I'm like, no, that's the wrong thing to say. We have always had data. The minute a person records and says, this experience is happening to me, I am correlating to this. And then you have three, four, five, six other people. That is data. And then they relay it to the powers of B, which Yes, it was Public Health England, environmental agencies that then said that data, we're going to look at that data and go, that's not valid. And and we need to stop that because one, I think every human is incredibly capable of their own intellect. They're very capable at expressing their own experience. And I think if anything, as experts, we just have to move it upstream. I think that's our main role. What do you think? Yeah. And I think we also have to remember the knock on effect of saying that someone's experience wasn't valid Mm. and in terms of how they engage with these issues further down the road. Like, you know, lots of um, I I think when you look at issues like air pollution, I'm so impressed by all the work that, you know, clean air 
Southall have done and and some of those kind of grassroots campaigning groups because it's hard to get people to listen to you and every time you shut someone down does that mean that they're not going to come forward and kind of voice their experience the next time and at the same time you have um and I've heard people saying this people saying well you know it's really hard to get BME communities to engage with Mm. our air quality action plans or it's really hard to get them (laughs) to engage with this it's like well when they do come forward what's your response like if you're shutting people down then how do you expect them to want to contribute in the future so I think it's a really important part of ensuring that you've got you have to listen to people and that is valid data people's experiences is valid obviously you, you know there's there's ways to triangulate that with different forms of data but it shouldn't be discarded or there shouldn't be this hierarchy of data which puts that below you know below some of the kind of academic data that's yeah. related to these issues. And which is interesting that they would say that being communities don't engage when we are about to get new policies in air pollution because of a black woman, a black mother, yeah. you know, Rosamond. Um, yeah. So, that, but, but look, I mean, like, I, I mean, I watch these things not because I'm just titillized by racism, but, uh, but it's because I, I, I'm wondering, okay, where, where do we, how do we get to these points and how many times the guardian, like there was, she was, I, I watched her arc, you know, her communication arc from when the, from when the, from when the, they got the results and who was covering her. And even in the guardian, who's been covering her for a while, her title, the title was, uh, new new information on air pollution and her name wasn't even mentioned and I'm like so even when it is that visible and if we were to ask the majority of the public you know who is who is Rosamond Adokisi they wouldn't know who that is and they wouldn't and and in so many places that name wasn't even mentioned or it wasn't the title role so even when they are very much galvanizing forward they are they are told but they are not, or their, their name isn't being isn't even being mentioned, and I think that's that's what also breeds the the erasure, right? The erasure of that intellect to say they're not engaging, and I'm like, how can you say that when they're they're leading environmental movements? Like yeah, I mean, she is she is an amazing campaigner. I just continue to be so impressed by her and her resilience mm. in the face of you know, what you describe. And even, you know, um, on low traffic neighborhoods, I, she, she raised concerns about low traffic neighborhoods in her local community in Lewisham. Um, and some people really quickly shut her down because, um, so, and that's what, you know, I have, I have funded low traffic neighborhoods in Southwark, but the point is for us to have a, a debate where we, are on and not even a debate I think debate might be too antagonistic a word but we need to find a solution that is right for you know a set of solutions that work in practice that right for people that will involve like conflict and debate and discussion but the thing not to do is to shut either side down um it's not a culture war we're just all Mm. trying to find (laughs) a way to make our cities healthier I think you know let's not let's not talk about it as a cultural because I really don't think it is 
No, no, it's not. That's why. That's why it really uh, made my heart sink when, when, when the media that the media is already portraying it like that, and um, but also the way people are reacting to people like Rosamond because I saw the reactions on Twitter, and yes, we got involved because it's irritating um, <laughs> that just to support her and go, you can't a don't speak to another human being like that, but b um, just just listen to somebody else's perspective on something that is having a great effect a on everybody but p particularly people like rosamond and um so bringing it back to then to the last point of your three-point toolkit the idea of iteration so again i'm cutting so looking at it now from an urban planning perspective you know just the very process of urban planning makes it very difficult for iteration, right? You have to put planning and then that gets approved. And then it's almost like it really is set in concrete in almost a very literal way, right? That the, once the concrete yeah. is laid, that's it. You can't change it. Um, but if we did have these process of, of, or even mental frameworks that these solutions should be iterative of, okay, we made a mistake here. That's okay. We're now going to change it. Or this worked really well. That's great. Let's, let's now move that to the next phase. So do you want to tease out a little bit more about that, uh, the importance of iterative uh, work in, in this methodology? I think it's really important. And I think it's the opportunity of, um, so, Low traffic neighborhoods are being implemented mostly using experimental traffic orders. You know, the the, the experiment, the whole point of an experiment is not that you implement something and see if it works right at the end. You know, the experimental methodologies are around adaptation and, you know, identifying things that don't work, tweaking them, trying again. Um, you do need good data to be able to do that. So whether that's lived experience data, data on traffic, um, you know, quantitative data. So you need that data to make sure that you're iterating in the right way. But I think that's the, that's the exciting thing about, you know, it's not just about low traffic neighborhoods, but any methodology, any kind of intervention where you can kind of prototype. So you can have, this is our test version of this and we can, we can learn how it works and how it's um, perceived by people and then iterate it. Obviously, that's a lot harder when you're talking about big, big developments and big urban planning. But, you know, where there is that opportunity to test and iterate, uh, I think you are doing, you know, you're doing a disservice if you're not learning from the data and trying to tweak and improve what you're doing. So um, we try and ensure it underpins as many of our projects as we can. So we're not saying this is the intervention, it's fixed. We're saying we should iterate and, and learn from it. And even things like, like even things around messaging or communication styles, like actually how you describe some of these types of interventions is as important as what they are. Yeah. Um, so how can you learn from what, do, what, what works, what doesn't work, what confuses people, I mean, right at the start of the pandemic, I noticed around me that um, uh, quite a lot of the main roads, they'd tried to create more um, space for social distancing on the pavements by putting in temporary barriers. Um, So, you know, just the orange and white barriers in the middle of the road. As someone who works on these issues, I... I didn't know that's what they were for. I just thought they were, I just thought they were roadworks. Right. Um, because they didn't have any signage. They didn't, there was no communication. There was no, 
this is why we've done this and this is how you can feed back to us if it works mm-hmm. or it doesn't work for you. Um, so I remember just walking along being like, why is there all of this stuff on the road now? Um, so even, you know, you can test and iterate about the actual intervention, about how you communicate, how you get feedback. Um, but I guess the last thing I'd say is I do think you need to be able to iterate well without just... Um, without just cycling through lots of iterations kind of pointlessly, you need data. And I think, I mean that in the broadest sense. Nice. Yeah. Um, Because I think there's, there's just, because every time that we research an intervention, usually it is what we're learning is a lot of it is single factorial, which is why I brought it up. Um, Mm -hmm. And then when it doesn't work, it just gets thrown away. And like, and, and I, for some reason it really sticks to me. Um, we were reading, I can't even quote it, it was such a long time ago, but you know, the interventions where they're like, kids need playgrounds. And so they, they go to really poor neighborhoods and they're like, they're like, here's a playground. And the kids are like, dope. Um, but I can't use it cause I don't feel safe there. Um, or they, <laughs> yeah. and so then, and then there's no funds in keeping up the, the playground. And so you get these images of these little dystopian playgrounds in poor neighborhoods that are, not well kept and then just erode, you know, just eroding away. And then that's it. They, the, everybody pieces out. It was like, there's no follow back. I was like, that also hurts the community just to be like, so you, you, you were all about this and then you just re-abandon us because you were like playgrounds everywhere. And, and we see that again and again. And, and it would just be such a shame that now that we have everybody or a, at least quite a few people now attaining to the, the problem that we have with air pollution that we don't just lose steam because the bike lane that we wanted or the planters that we put at the end of the streets didn't do anything you know that that's just yeah. a starting point right and then we have to go okay these are probably not going to work but they're working in terms of raising awareness so maybe we use yeah. you know we get that you know that's how we see them in the in the supply chain I was like okay well let's use these to create conversations about it yeah you know and iterate from and iterate from there but you're right. Yeah. We iterate with data. I like that. Well, Kate, it's been really fantastic speaking with you. Thank you so much for, 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 for doing this with us. Um, Josh is very quick on the edit, so he'll give you a really lovely intro and outro. And, um, and then of course you can share it with all your channels. Oh, great. Thank you so much, Araceli. Thank you, Josh. It's, um, it's been a real pleasure and keep up the good work. I think, um, Centric Lab is such an important voice in this space. And as I have told you many a time before, Araceli, so much of the work that you've done for us has really shaped how we think about equity and air pollution. So um, yeah, keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Kate. And hopefully we'll get to do some work this year. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, Kate. Have a have a healthy 2021. Let's let's just go for that baseline. <laughs> you too, you too. Thanks, Araceli. Bye. So that was the conversation with Kate. We've put links to Kate's work in the notes of this podcast if you want to find out more about hers and the foundation's work. All that's left to say from our side now is please, if you can, give us a rating review from wherever you've heard this. And a big thank you to those who support the production of this podcast, such as our Patreon members, which you too can sign up for whatever you want to donate per month. And lastly, do head over to our website to know more about the research, membership program we run, and the projects that we do at Centric Lab. 
Thanks and wishing you a healthy 2021.